Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Taylor Keene. Taylor is a teacher, community builder, and Native American thought leader based out of Omaha, Nebraska. His backstory is as diverse as it is impressive. He's a member of both the Omaha tribe and the Cherokee Nation. He attended Dartmouth College and Harvard University, and he enjoyed a successful stint in corporate America before returning to Nebraska to teach entrepreneurship and management at Creighton University. His most recent undertaking is Sacred Seed, a project with the goal of preserving Native American heritage and history through collecting, growing, and spreading the seeds of corn and other traditional Native American foods. The writer Wallace Stegner theorized that people generally fit into one of two categories. They're either boomers or they're stickers. Boomers are, quote, those who pillage and run and want to make a killing and end up on easy street. Stickers, however, are just the opposite. They're, quote, motivated by affection, by such a love for place and its life that they want to preserve it and remain in it, end quote. Well, Taylor is the walking embodiment of a sticker. Given his drive, intelligence, education, he could have followed the path of the boomer and pursued any number of careers. But a deep love of his Native American heritage and his community called him back home to teach, lead, and live a life devoted to service of others. It's a truly inspiring story. I could have talked to Taylor for hours, and I only asked him about a third of the questions I'd prepared, but we still managed to dig into a wide variety of fascinating topics. We discussed the history and mission of Sacred Seed and where he sees the project going in the future. We talked about his path from the West to the Ivy League, some of the decisions that led him to transition from corporate America to higher education, and some very interesting Native American history. One of my favorite parts of our conversation was Taylor's recounting the advice he received from his grandfather soon after graduating from Harvard Business School. This was a very enlightening conversation for me, and I greatly appreciate Taylor taking the time to chat. I encourage you to visit the Sacred Seed website and watch the video. You can find links to everything we discuss in the episode notes on the webpage. So here you go, Taylor Keene. I've been starting out these interviews when I'm chatting with people. I ask them that when they meet somebody for the first time and the person asks that question that, that people love to ask, what do you do? How do you describe that? How do you answer that? Well, as time has gone on, um, coming from the Native American tradition, uh, I began to really realize um, that as a teacher, I was most effective whenever I became a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of my friends who know me well uh, would say, uh, you are pretty good at shooting the bull, so <laughs> <laughs> storyteller it is. Nice. And so as part of that, I, I know you, you wear a ton of different hats, and that's one of the things I thought was so interesting um, about you and your work, but I, I know that you're – you are a, a teacher, and you're a, uh, you work at a you you run a new nonprofit that I want to talk about, and so maybe we can just kind of dive into the the first part of that, which is your your most recent project, the Sacred Seed Project. And could you just explain a little bit about what that project is and, and what your mission is with the, with that project? Because I think it's very 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 interesting and important. Well, I appreciate that. Um... Sacred Seed has been a project that's been very near and dear to my heart. Um, most of the, it, well, its present status is a, is a nonprofit in the state of Nebraska, but uh, we are quickly growing and establishing a, I would say, more of a broader digital footprint, but most of the story about Sacred Seed uh, is kind of tied to a lot of my larger work. I'm uh, working on a book project, which in essence is going backwards in time into my Native American roots, mm-hmm. um, trying to understand what the what the real story of this continent was. Yep. And uh, along that journey, um, 
began to realize how important uh, corn uh, was to the prosperity and perhaps uh, some of the challenges on this continent, say, a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, but before I began to really understand the magnitude of what was uh, a part of the history, um, about 10 years ago, um, my one of my favorite mentors in life and uh, father figure is uh, Dr. Deward Walker, who's the chair emeritus of the anthropology department uh, there at CU Boulder. Okay. And uh, I had uh, been out there and first started flirting with uh, becoming a university professor uh, there in Boulder. Uh, goodness gracious, almost 20 years ago. And uh, but I've become very close with uh, Dr. Walker and uh, Vine Deloria Jr., one of our uh, most preeminent Native American thinkers, uh, mm-hmm. was there at CU both at the time. And uh, Charles Wilkinson, uh, environmentalist, water rights lawyer, and uh, people like Walter Echohawk and John Echohawk from the Native American Rights Fund. So for me, it was the hotbed of the Native intelligentsia until I. Um, got the opportunity to learn a lot from all those wonderful thinkers. Mm-hmm. And uh, some years later, I had heeded uh, um, the call of service back to go work at the Cherokee Nation. Ultimately, I served on our Cherokee National Council and um, helped uh, lead a bunch of our economic development activities. But um, right before I had gotten on the National Council, and Stewart will often call me, and we have very serious chats about things. And uh, as an anthropologist, Stewart's one of the good guys, mm-hmm. uh, meaning he, he uh, was helping Indian tribes. Most anthropologists, and uh, if there are anthropologists in your audience, forgive me. Many <laughs> of them just study, study Indians. Sure. And Stewart um, um, never took that as a model. He wasn't a collector of objects um, or an esteemed authority from his own perspective. He uh, has always helped tribes with things around sacred geography, uh, American Indian religious freedom, mm-hmm. and for example, helping to fight for the rights of uh, incarcerated Native Americans to practice their religion, to grow their hair long, to attend sweat lodge ceremonies. So mm-hmm. I, I've always trusted Stewart and looked for his guidance on things. And uh, so it was about 10 years ago, he, um, one of our conversations said, uh, young man, what are you doing to protect your corn? And I said, my corn? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, ultimately what he was alluding to was uh, what we now know as a big battle uh, between a lot of the, uh, if you can even call them producers or manufacturers of uh, genetically modified organisms mm-hmm. like corn. And uh, so, for example, the battles between Monsanto and farmers in India, he had been following that battle yep. and was um, concerned that uh, uh, they were going to try to get to national property rights for indigenous corn. And therefore, what was I doing to protect it? And I, of course, knew nothing about any of these things at that point and says, I don't know, but can they really do that, Deward? Yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, it, you know, it, it's it's worth checking into, and so that planted the seed, so to speak. And uh, a couple of years after that, like I said, when I was serving on the National Council for the Cherokee Nation, our uh, ethnobotanist there at the Cherokee Nation, Pat Glenn, had uh, approached the Natural Resource Committee and uh, talked about um, this seed bank in Svalbard, Norway, mm-hmm. and. Um, I said, this is important, and I don't know if we should put stuff in there, but we should be thinking along those lines. And after the meeting, I pulled him aside. I said, hey, um, is it true that Montana and some of these other corporations might be uh, trying to get our corn? And uh, he laughed and said, yes. And so at that point, I was hooked. And I said, hey, how can can we go about this? So just for for my education on this, they would – get a, a native seed or a seed that hadn't really been in any sort of production for, you know, a hundred years, they would grab that and then 
figure out what it is genetically and then patent that. Is that is that correct? Well, I, I think in its uh, the if, if if one were to be pessimistic, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, understanding a little bit about patent law, and I'm certainly no expert, but. If they're not new and novel, you can't patent them. So a bunch of the old strains couldn't be, but if they created hybrids... Got it, got it. Use that as a base to build something else. I got you. Yeah. And so um, that started a lot of the journey. And so I asked Pat because I said, hey, you know, do we have all of our old crops? And he says, we have have some. And he says, I'm skeptical on how many of them have been cross-pollinated. And uh, for those who have followed some of these... GMO battles. Um, basically, if any of their corn cross pollinates yours, which can easily happen, mm-hmm. uh, they own your corn. I've heard that. Yeah. And uh, so, long story short, um, Pat and, and his staff there at the Cherokee Nation Seed Saving Project. Um, my understanding is that they uh, started looking around. Uh, to find old strains, and uh, ironically, they uh, they looked into the annals of anthropology and museums, and ultimately found some really old strains, and uh, that's what started my project, the Sacred Seed. And we began to look, you know, further. And I'm, I'm from two tribes, the Cherokees and the Omahas. And mm-hmm. at one point, I used to think they were radically different, um, but the more I learn about history, is how much we are all related. On the surface, so, what, what, what did you think was different about those two tribes? Well, I mean, just kind of growing up, you know, knowing the uh, Omahas or, you know, Western Plains tribe, mm-hmm. um, everything is about the bison. I'm a member of the Earthen Bison Clan for the Omahas. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the Cherokees were, uh, you know, uh, arguably from the southeast. Yes. Although um, the more I learn about history, it's the East Coast, and, and our creation stories are even more fantastical than that. Um, but in a lot of my research for my book project, I began to realize that so many of the cosmologies are the same. Um, for example, in Cherokee cosmology, you have uh, first father and first mother. Kanati is the, the deer hunter, and Selu is mother corn. Wow. And so I began to... To, to realize that there's this whole, well, this old cosmology uh, that ties uh, all of the tribes together somehow in some ancient old story, and I, uh, probably my life's quest to figure out what what that all is. Um, but certainly, corn played a big uh, piece in that. And as I began to learn more about what was being done here in Nebraska historically, I realized that. Uh, we had four sisters, and uh, when it comes to the staples of agriculture and uh, corn being one, um, beans, squash, and then the sunflower. Mm-hmm. And um, I, where I found uh, a, a good amount of seeds here locally, uh, ironically, again, was out at uh, the Fur Trader Museum out in western Nebraska, mm-hmm. not too far from Fort Atkinson. And when somebody told me that, I said, what? Are you sure? And said, no, no, I heard. They have these uh, really rare Omaha pumpkin squash seeds. And I said, well, I know that we have those. I've been looking around and talking to people in the tribe, and nobody has any. And so eventually I made my trek out there, and sure enough, they had you know, a handful of packets of some of these seeds and some other seeds. When you got there and asked that question, was it a surprise? The person who was working there that you met with, were they surprised to hear that question, or did they know exactly what you were talking about right off the bat? Oh, they knew what I was talking about. Um, and, and the uh, and, and the folks that were running at the time were, were very knowledgeable about the history of me and explained to me that the Fur Trader Museum um, was just the next um, – Catharsis of what had been uh, the um, fur trading post. That was the primary one in Nebraska at the time. Yep. And uh, so they had this legacy, and, uh, you know, uh, being good traders, they kept notes on everything. Ultimately, it produced a, 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 a singular work uh, that documented a lot of those activities. And so you had uh, that gentleman, his name was Oscar Will, and his son, Charles Will, had actually uh, 
written the book, I think probably in the 1950s or 60s, and published it much after his you know, father's life of uh, running uh, this trading post. And in that piece of work, um, brilliantly, um, they documented all of the activities of the tribes around agriculture and trade. And um, basically, it was a how-to of how we planted, when we planted, what shapes were the fields in, were they, uh, were they structured in mounds, how were they planted together, and not only told us how to plant again and when, um, but also why and what the economics were at the time. And so here I was finding this recipe backwards into time of exactly how, you know, we took care of our four sisters mm-hmm. and uh, began to realize, you know, the, the beauty of things that we now can call companion planting. So uh, because those fields, they weren't changed every other year. Um, they were good for about 10 years. And I realized one of the reasons why is they planted corn and beans together. Mm-hmm. And so it was just beautiful the way they laid it out. Uh, you know, these rectangular little plots that a family, that Omaha family would plant on and the, the size of the mounds to get the corn out of the water because these were arid varieties and plant the squash in between and the beans climbed the corn and the sunflowers were planted on the south facing side so that those big, huge winds that always come mm-hmm. on the plains somewhere in late June usually um, would break, serve as a windbreak to, to, so we didn't lose a whole bunch of corn to the, to the tough winds. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the economics of it, it was fascinating because all those tribes indigenous to Nebraska uh, up until their dislocation down to Oklahoma, the Pawnee, the Ponca, the Oto, the Iowa, Sackin Fox, all those tribes around here, um, you know, the, the, they were between 75 and 100 percent economically self-reliant on the excess sell of corn alone. Wow. And, you know, when you look at today's American Indian reservations, you know, it's the opposite. And we are not economically self-reliant. Mm-hmm. But here is a tried and true historical solution to that. At least that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. I saw that as the salvation for um, all my relatives who live on reservations. Yep. Uh, and even for those of us who are not, uh, I saw a passage into the past in a way to reconnect with history and culture and uh, certainly nature. And so the past uh, couple of years, my uh, backyard has been transformed <laughs> from what was a, a backyard to grow grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's just a, a huge garden and uh, seems to be getting a lot of attention from a lot of people. Yeah, that uh, video that I came across online, which is how I, I learned about your work, I thought it was very well done. And I'll put a link to that on on our web page so that people can watch it. But I thought that was a, a really good intro to the project. And you can see the actually see the garden and see you walking around out there. And it. it's just it's just great. Um, can you talk a little that bit? Was after the, that was after the rain had uh, taken about 50 percent of the corn. Um, and you know, the, the, the pure beauty of those gardens is while they're growing, but you know, as you're reaching harvest time, uh, um, and everything's starting to, to dry up. Of course, they all have their own time and place, but, uh, yeah, in that video, one of the things that had happened during the summer, I was terribly disappointed when we lost, uh, a lot of the corn. It wasn't just my plot. We've mm-hmm. got a 10 or 12 plots that we work with here around the city of Omaha and, and uh, all similar fates. But in my yard, I had uh, also introduced, uh, always trying to bring in new varieties. And so this year we had you know, introduced Beyond the Four Sisters, uh, uh, real um, strawberries. Uh, that's a huge part of our our cosmology and stories. Um, uh, Cherokee okra, which is massive. They By the end of the season, they were 13, 14 feet tall, as was oh, Cherokee wow. flower corn. And uh, the Rickerous sunflowers that we planted uh, were even taller than that. They were probably 14 or 15 feet tall. And uh, I'd introduced some Cherokee dipper gores, which when dried um, have uh, ceremonial use uh, as a gourd dipper. So I planted some of those. 
and uh, you know some of these heirloom varieties were just beyond comprehension because uh, we're used to seeing you know tight manicured little gardens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's one plant that I planted ended up producing you know I think it was 33 big dipper gourds and they're huge. Wow! And they took full advantage of the corn that had. Uh, uh, fallen over in the heavy rains and, and winds, and they climbed up those, and I left them, and they ultimately climbed up on the telephone line and <laughs> pulled it off the house by the end of the season. So that was part of what you'll see in that video, is me walking around uh, looking up at the different boards into the sky. But uh, it, 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 it changed me. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember when we were talking yesterday, you mentioned that, and I'd love to hear the, the details on that. How How did it change you? Well, I mean, just finding that book, Corner of the Upper Missouri River, um, you know, seeing this recipe of, you know, how my ancestors and other tribes in in the West were able to, you know, to have corn sustain them as a tribe, economically speaking. But more than that, there were all the stories of the the songs that were sung and the role of... uh, boys and girls in that process. And, um, you know, I, I just tried as much as possible, uh, to recreate that and also went to elders within our tribe. Um, my, my clan, the earth and bison clan, we are keepers of the red corn. And so the taboo is we can't even touch it. And, in our, uh, history and as part of our culture, I was able to visit with a lot of elders who all remembered a little bit of something. Uh huh. Now, here's how they uh, roasted the corn to make it sweet. Um, that only uh, women were supposed to plant, and only women of uh, fertile age were supposed to plant. And uh, it really kind of opened up something uh, that I've explored in the rest of my the writing of my book, uh, ultimately understanding more about the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. And uh, so this is the second year that we planted that way, and the men folk have a certain uh, part of the duties. We can help prepare the ground, but when it comes time to plant, we get out of the way. And I call on all the uh, women who who will come help me, and we get out of the way and let them do the do the planting. Your your timing, and, uh, I couldn't imagine your timing could could have been much better because I would imagine your you're really close to running out of time to that link of people who are alive, who actually remember any of that. You know, I would think 10 years from now, it's good. It would be pretty hard to find people who have a, have a memory of that. Is that correct? That is correct. And, um, that was certainly something that, um, stumbling onto a project like this is that's what's been so, so fulfilling. Um, I had I had my uh, mother come and offer the, the prayer and the blessing for us as we uh, planted on the new moon in uh, in May, which is uh, our time to plant. Mm-hmm. And just getting back to those uh, those rhythms of the earth that was the first thing I noticed that began to change me because you know um, here uh, you know we just finished with uh, the harvest a month or two ago and. Uh, chopped and diced up all of the of the plants of what was left and let them turn back into the earth and cutting down hickory and oak to make wood ash lie wood ash for the soil and you know now we're starting to get some snow then that will pack it and preserve it and help break it down so by spring we have more nutrients back in the ground again mm-hmm. and then knowing that come April it's time to Start, you know, getting those seeds ready, and where are we going to plant? And where's our new plots? And who's going to help me do all? This? <laughs> and so it's just kind of brought us back into the natural cycles, and uh, uh, you know, understanding the, the movements of the moon. Yeah, um, but all, all of that is just—it's uh, been. Um, I said, feel like I'm getting back to an ancient uh, ritual of sorts, just by the fact that you know i have this relationship with with the plants now mm-hmm. and all of our old stories whatever tribe you come from most of them you know say you've got to sing to the corn so i sing that's I great think that's in one of those one of those videos yeah it is and, i saw uh, that in the video 
And uh, there's just something magical about the whole thing. I said, it's changed me as a person uh, to understand those those cycles. And it gives me a tremendous amount of peace and uh, balance to know that uh, even if it's just for a little bit, maybe it's just my backyard and now the number is growing of other seed ambassadors who have helped us with sacred seed. Uh, but they all share a story and we have a, a fall festival to celebrate the harvest. And we bring all the growers together and everybody tells stories. And of course, we eat uh, brilliantly and uh, locally we found uh, a great chef who's been a wonderful partner with us who uh, can take all these wonderful heirloom, organic, all natural varieties and turn it into something phenomenal. And so it's allowed us an opportunity to even uh, rethink uh, Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much of um, the real history of that is is pretty contrived here in America. Mm-hmm. But uh, without getting sucked into those politics, I know that <laughs> this fall this fall harvest festival is is what it's really supposed to be like, and uh, hopefully it's going to be something that uh, many people here and uh, where I'm at. Uh, will enjoy as it, as it uh, grows, but hopefully it can be something that can be expanded into other places all over the West. Yeah. So if you're thinking about if you're thinking about this project and you think about where you'd like to be five years from now with the project, how, what do you see uh, going on with Sacred Seeds? Well, I hope that we just continue to um, grow our agricultural land base, but basically we kind of got that sort of backyard by backyard. Um, one of the, you know, the, the big concerns with this project is always cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. And so especially in a place like Nebraska or anywhere here in, 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 the, in the West, um, you know, there's all these huge GMO plots, um, but they're not in, you know, the inner, inner parts of the city for the most part. So as long as I'm a mile away from any GMO stuff, we're fine. So um, we do our best to, you know, pollinate by hand and and uh, make sure that they're all protected. But hopefully, uh, I've got a great story to tell in five years that you know, we've got seed ambassadors all all over the country or all over the world, for that matter, um, finding more and more people who are interested in these. And uh, as we began the project, you know. I've, a lot of people ask, well, what's the goal here? Mm-hmm. And I used to try to measure it in, well, you know, we're going to have a big farm. I want to sell to all the great gourmet restaurants here in town, um, feed the farmer's markets. And um, that perspective has changed for me to some degree and uh, because it's really just from the personal experience that I've had in my own backyard. Um tilling the soil and following the cycles and watching these beautiful crops grow naturally and, you know, learning the relationships uh, of the four sisters and um, having to make rabbit-proof fences as much as that's really unlikely to, <laughs> to be able to keep them out. And, uh, and then understanding things like the squash and it keeps the raccoons away from the corn and, um you know, just, you know, once this thing was in my backyard, you know, realizing what an ecosystem it was and watching uh, all the varieties of, of bees and wasps and hornets and spiders and birds and squirrels and everything just migrated to my backyard. And I, I want people to experience that. That's uh, interesting uh, that you've had that, that change in perspective because I, from the little bit I, I know about your background, I know that you, you have an MBA and you were in the business world for a while. And it sounds like when you, you started approaching this, it was more of that mindset. And as you got into it, it you kind of zoomed out and saw it in a more holistic uh, way, which is, that's pretty interesting. They, they beat that MBA out of you. <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, I'd like to joke that, uh, you know, that, uh, that the earth and the corn have coaxed me out of thinking that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not that I, uh, um, don't employ my, uh, my Harvard MBA. Um, I, it just makes me think uh, bigger. And if there's anything I learned from going to school out East was 
you know, use your mind to the best of your abilities, dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, a, as a university professor now, cor- corporate strategy, that's what it comes down to for me. Mm-hmm. I'm working with students or nonprofits or for-profits or startups. You know, strategy in the end is, you know, what's the one thing that you or you and your organization can do better than anybody else in the world? And after counseling, I don't know how many students and entrepreneurs in that capacity uh, I had to ask myself, yeah, what's the one thing I can do better than anybody else in the world? And it's this, um, and I can employ all of my faculties and uh, all the things I've learned over the years into the exploration of all this beautiful part of my roots. And uh, hopefully, you know, uh, my ancestors are happy, and I couldn't think of anything better to do than would be to pay homage to Mother Earth and the four sisters and all of my ancestors by combining it all together and trying to share it with others. There was a pivotal point where I realized that somebody had said said to me, because um, we were discussing why it's called Sacred Seed, and I said, well, there's some things that are beyond commerce. Mm-hmm. And that really struck the students on my team at that time. And they were very interested in that. We began to study economics of uh, gifting economies. And um, if something really is sacred, then it can't be monetized. And so we had these wonderful um, discussions. It was really aided by uh, a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is a lovely book. And uh, and I'll have links to all these, all these books in the notes as well. Yeah, we try to put most of them up on sacredseed.org. I'll make okay. sure that Brady and Sweetgrass is up there, too. Great. Um, but, uh, you know, that there are things that are beyond that. And we began to realize that, you know, a lot of it's so hard to grow some of this stuff. And, you know, just the care that comes into it, you know, watching, you know, your perceived losses <laughs> or to the gain of the raccoons or squirrels or birds. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a natural part of the cycle. And so we've adapted our thinking like, you know, now we, we grow a little bit more so that the raccoons and the squirrels can have some too. That's great. And the birds. And it's like I said, it's just, it's a, it's not just a plant, but you know, when the sunflowers are ripened and there's birds all over the place and they're happy and the squirrels are happy. And, you know, these old varieties are so prolific. It's just like, well, that's what this is made for. Yeah. So not, not meant to be at the dominion of humans, you know, we're stewards. And I really began to realize that there's a much broader learning experience around this that is sacred. And, uh, and I said, that's where I began to, to measure things and differently that I want other people to experience this. And therefore we all uh, have a greater love for mother earth and its bounty. And that kind of goes with the whole notions of, uh, what I've, uh, come to call living red. And, uh, perhaps an homage to my ancestors, uh, but uh, a pining for the way that this country used to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, pining for the return of bison, which many people have said I was crazy to ever think about that it's ever possible. Of course it's possible. Anything's possible. There's a guy I admire, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've heard of him, out of South Dakota named Dan O'Brien. Uh, do you know, have you heard yeah. of him? And um, I yeah. saw him speak a, a year or two ago, and uh, he was... He was uh, at the Patagonia store here in Boulder and he was talking about his partnership with Patagonia. And uh, I just, I was really amazed with, with the work he's doing. And we kind of commiserated after the fact about some conservation issues in the West. And he just, he just seemed like a great guy. And, I, and we've actually been emailing and I'm hoping to get him on the podcast as well. Cause I think he's, it's a, a different, you know, obviously a, a different than what you're doing, but I think it's all in the, in the same spirit. It is all in the same spirit. And that's, you know, part of the stuff that I want to do do next, I've been uh, talking with some of the, there's there's at least two outfits here in Nebraska that are doing um, justice to um, to bison. And uh, there's the Gottschall Ranch, which is one that I want to work with. And uh, there's the Hutchinson Ranch. But I've uh, told some phenomenal stories around that. Uh, one of the local chefs here, in Omaha from the great plume, Clayton Chapman is a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I showed him some of my corn. He was very interested and he wanted to hear all the stories about how we grew it. When you heard about 
the role of the sacred feminine. He was fascinated, and he uh, conveyed a story about how his grower had begun to work with the Lakotas who would come down, and he was just in awe of the degree of sacredness that uh, kind of went along with it. And every time that they've gone for a harvest, so to speak, you know, the Lakotas come down and they take it very seriously. And there's a lot of ceremony and prayer and song. And in essence, what happens every time is that the herd splits down the middle and, and, the, and there's one that's left and it walks up uh, on this ridge and there they take it. And so, it, you know, um, these are things that uh, we thought were lost, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but all there's all this wonderful, um, magical things that are still a part of this world if you believe in it and if you've got uh, the heart to, to try to go back and find it again. And uh, I said, to me, that's worth more than any amount of money or anything else to be a part of. It's magical. It is. And I think you, the, the third aspect is that you're willing to work harder than anybody else because the reality is you're swimming upstream. You know, you're going against these, these massive, the, the way that these massive corporations have set up the agricultural system and, uh, you know, the, the bison with the bison ranching, you're going against the, the meat industry, um, just kind of the, the, the easiest way to, to make money. And so you're fighting economic forces, you're fighting cultural forces. Um, I don't know if fighting is the right word, but, but those are all oh, it's fighting. Go, going against, yeah, you're going against the grain. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of people with big, big dreams. Um, a lot of people can sit around and say how things should be, but you're doing it. <laughs> and that's, that's a lot different than just talking and, um, and, and having good intentions. You know, you're, you're putting in, you know, who knows how many hours and hundreds and thousands of hours towards this. And I just think it's, it's amazing. And those people like you are the reason that, that we're going to be able to keep living in the West and enjoying it the, the way we have. Oh, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a very fine compliment. I, I, I had to, to notice uh, that you used uh, some terminology there, and I don't know if you know what the meaning of uh, Omaha is. I don't, in but I, I want to know. Uh, in our language, Omaha means the people that move against the current. Does it really? It wow. Does. Very cool. So you, you hit the nail right on the head. All there. right. I didn't even know that. Wow. I feel smart for the day now. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, one thing, I, I, like I was saying yesterday, I could talk to you for hours, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but one thing that I've found through this podcast is that, you know, there's so many passionate people who are doing so much important work out in the West, but they also have interesting personal backstories. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your personal backstory, because from what I've seen, yeah. there's, there's some interesting things there. So where did you, where did you grow up? Well, I, I um, you know, coming from two different tribes. I've been around both all my life. Um, my childhood, uh, most of it was spent down in Cherokee country. I grew up in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, our joke was we uh, uh, we came up here every every summer to get beat up on the reservation. <laughs> <laughs> that was until we hit. That was until we, we we hit puberty, and then there was some payback. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I've always had strong ties to uh, my Omaha and Cherokee roots, so Nebraska and Oklahoma. Okay, and you went east for school to some some of the best schools in the entire world. What what got it in your head to go east versus versus staying out here? And how, what was that journey like? Well, uh, you know, at at some point, I, I I think it had more to do with somebody told me I couldn't do it. Nice. <laughs> That's a common theme. That's a common theme. <laughs> and um, somewhere I got it in my head that, uh, well, I was always, uh, I've always liked thinking and I've always liked school, which is not ironic that I become a professor now. But mm-hmm. um, somewhere along the way, I had this fanciful dream about going to the Ivy League. And um, I said, somebody probably told me I couldn't do it. So I <laughs> decided I was going to try it. And um, I, I I did go to a prep school for an extra year to get myself prepared for it. And that oh, okay. Was the real, that was the real life changing thing. Um, Where was that? Got to go. I went to a school called called Northfield Mount Herman. Okay. 
I'm sure that was a uh, quite a change in in culture very quickly. Yeah, it was. And a matter of fact, uh, I just ran into uh, uh, a friend from that era uh, who I recalled uh, teasing me because when I showed up, I was in uh, you know Wranglers, Ropers, and a cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as the weather changed, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to. Um, be a part of a program that helped prepare us for <laughs> transitions. And uh, uh, it was noted when I first came back from the L.L. Bean uh, store that you know, all of a sudden I had khakis and tough boots and, <laughs> and flannels. So. I went to a, a prep school as well, and I had some Texan classmates. And I remember the first year we had, we were in the mountains of Virginia, and there was a big ice storm. And the first ice storm of the year, and I saw a freshman walking in, in a Texan freshman walking in cowboy boots and he was trying to go down the sidewalk and those cowboy boots were not working with the ice. And, uh, he, the next time I saw him, he was decked out in the, <laughs> the LL bean stuff as well. <laughs> um, yeah. so when you got there to, to boarding school or, or even in college and you went to Dartmouth, is that correct? I did. What was, what was one of the biggest, what was the biggest surprise? I'd say, I mean, obviously I, there are probably too many to count, but was there one, one thing that surprised you more than anything, because I, I grew up in the East and moved West and I just couldn't believe the, the cultural changes and the geography and the topography and all that. And so I'd love to hear your perspective kind of going the other way. Well, I was certainly struck by the, by the sheer beauty of new England. Um, I remember the first morning that I, uh, I arrived in Northfield, Massachusetts this gorgeous old building and we were looking right at uh at the white mountains and they were purple mm-hmm. <laughs> i couldn't help but think that's purple mountain majesty right there yeah that's right <laughs> uh, uh it you know it, uh, that that was uh what i really realized is you know what a wonderful opportunity it is to learn and i um had come from you know um public schools and had never been exposed to things like uh, philosophy or philosophy of religion, all these other things. So I just was a kid in the candy store in terms of I could think about whatever I wanted to and could be challenged. So, but uh, besides the fact that they talked really fast, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I discovered that I had a, what I would use in economic terms was a comparative advantage Mm-hmm. Meaning um, that I was from the West, and uh, you know, I, I knew about horses and cattle and, <laughs> and cowboy boots. Sure. <laughs> and uh, so, really, all I had to do was change the cowboy boots and uh, some Timberlands, and uh, I already had some flannel shirts, but just a little bit heavier. And um, I was somebody different, and unique out there. And, um, but, uh, I could, I could fit in just fine the way I was. A lot of people still like to make fun of my accent. Hey, I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I've had, uh, I used to do a lot of work in Montana and on two separate occasions, completely unrelated. I had Montana ranchers ask me if I was from Scotland and I said, well, somebody (laughs) was about 400 years ago, but, uh, but I'm not, (laughs) I guess I've still got a little bit of it in me. Um, so you, you went to Harvard for two different graduate degrees, is that correct? Yes, I did. Yeah, I went to the business school, and then I uh, went went through the John F. Kennedy School of Government as well. And then spent some time in the business world um, during the, from my research, sounds like during the dot-com boom and then some, some afterwards. And then you decided yep. you wanted to, to head back out. To, to where you're from and, and teach. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and how, because it, I would imagine not many people would have the guts to make that decision if they've got this basically unlimited earning potential in front of them to, to walk away from that, to, to go into teaching. How did you come to that decision? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think overall, um, when I think back to my corporate years, um, I just was never that cut out for as much as I try to convince myself at the time. And probably anyone who knows me well would probably agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because 
Well, it, it, there was something certainly striking that I was told uh, whenever I graduated. Um, I um, came back here for a ceremony here in uh, in the Omaha Indian Country, and uh, in essence, you have a celebration. Your family puts forth this. This was for a, a war dance celebration, but uh, there's an opportunity for a, a blessing within there. And in essence, you're inviting everyone to your war dance party. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a certain portion of it where there is uh, the man in charge. And uh, it was my grandpa, Valentine Parker. He's gone now. <clears throat> but in essence, he's going to counsel you in front of the whole tribe or whoever is chosen to be there to witness it. And it's uh, just a proud, special occasion uh, for my family, especially my, my, my mother. And uh, I will forever remember his address to me. And uh, he said, "Uh, grandson, you're my own, meaning we were of the same bloodlines. And he said, "Um, I don't know much about what you've been through. He says, but what they tell me, those schools that you attended were some of the best. And he said that... I know your teachings from your grandmother. Um, God gave you a mind and use it. He said, that's good. But he chastised me a little bit. Mm-hmm. So now you've learned all the ways of the white man. Mm-hmm. Make sure you learn our ways too. And uh, that's where he gave a careful warning. And he said... Um, you need to be careful with what you're doing there. He says, uh, some of them, and he was just referring broadly, I think to the whole corporate world or maybe even to the, to the white world. He said, some of them worship money Mm -hmm. and the creator Wakanda doesn't want us to do that. And, uh, he went on and he said, when the, When it's all said and done, and the Creator calls you home, nobody's going to remember what titles you had or how much money you made. The only ones that are going to remember anything about you are those that you touched their hearts and their lives, those that loved you. And so that that was uh, not the thing that I was. <laughs> how old were you? How old were you when he when he told you that? My MBA from Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it you know it really did touch me, and I, now that now that I go back and look on at things, um, it was it was important for me to learn about business, and I certainly uh, applied. I said as part of my profession as a university professor, um, but you know I'm I also have different roles uh, presently. I'm still chairman of the board for the Omaha nation's uh, hospitality endeavors. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's all business there and it's about job creation and uh, hopefully wealth creation for the indiv- individual families. And um, so it's kind of come full circle. Um, but the other thing that I noticed along the way was, you know, I, I probably don't really need that much um, I got a nice house and I've got a lot of nice friends and I'm close to most of my tribes and those are the things that matter in the end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I try to be smart with my uh, finances, but you know, I don't, uh, I don't need a Porsche. I don't need a, <laughs> an opulent house. Yep. I have a beautiful old home that I've helped uh, maintain and restore with my own hands. And uh, I've got this great backyard where, uh, it seems to be getting a lot more attention than I think had I done the other path. Sure. Uh, I, I just I uh, walk, walk the red road, as we call it. Well, it seems like you've you've got it figured out. Or And, and um, I, I just read a book by Sebastian Younger, the guy who wrote Perfect Storm. Sure. It's really short, um, and it's called Tribe. And it's about he, – he's talking uh, mostly about the military and how when these soldiers come home, they have so many problems, but he expands it beyond that. And he actually talks about an experience he had on a Native American uh, – with a Native American tribe when he was in high school. But his, his, the basic thesis of the book is that the reason there's uh, so many people have such a hard time these days in the United States is because 
they are lacking community and they're lacking purpose. And so when these people come home right. from the military, they, they've been in this tight knit community, you know, sleeping in these tight knit quarters, you know, on a mission, you know, you can argue whether the mission's good or bad, but they've got a goal. And then they come home and they're sitting in a apartment or in the suburbs, completely isolated. And it seems like what you're doing is you've obviously got a mission and you've obviously got a, a very tight community. And it seems like we're wired for that. That's what we're, that's, we're, we're supposed to be that way. And I, and, um, it's, it is. And, you know, that's, that's one of the, um, extrapolations that I've, as we were, as I've been exploring, um, uh, what I've been calling living red, that's, that's one of the pieces. Um, and as a strategist, I get to work with a lot of organizations and I've incorporated a lot of these teachings into that because what I tell everybody is, um, economically speaking, the most resilient organization there is, is a tribe mm-hmm. because it incorporates everyone together. And, um, an example that I've used, um, whether it be Native American tribes here in America or the Hebrew tribe, um, kind of um, a stark way to describe it, but uh, even if you want to destroy us, you have to kill all of us, because if you don't, we'll still be there. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the, the being a part of a tribe, is it's not a club. It's beyond that. And economically speaking, it is the most resilient organization there is. And there's a lot of lessons that um, other types of organizations can learn from it. And I've done some really neat experimentations with uh, non-traditional organizations that were trying to do that. Uh, for example, the notion of clans. So the way that I've come to learn to understand and, is that uh, clans are all those things that are the most necessary for the tribe to maintain mm-hmm. its order, its stability. And so whether that uh, be with examples like with the Omahas, we have... Um, uh, earthen clans and we have sky clans and uh, I, I could never know that much about all the other clans I can speak for our earthen bison clan and that you know we had a particular responsibility and typically it was for the hunt and the allocation of those meat across the tribe and uh, there's the sky bison clan and uh, from those that I know in that clan and from the little that I've learned from them uh, a lot of it's more spiritual and ceremonial. They were responsible for a certain part of our, of the tail dance of our war dance mm-hmm. and uh, a certain songs and rites. And so I began to see this much bigger picture of not just thinking about organizations in the typical business way, um, but understanding a, a deeper, even ceremonial meeting. And that's, that's the difference between organizations and tribes. I love Younger's work. I look forward to exploring what he's done there. Yeah, it's it's uh, very good. I'll I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll I'll get it on Amazon Prime coming your way, so you'll have it in the next two days. You'll I appreciate. Yeah, that. you'll love it. It's uh, I'd say it's it's one of the top two books I've read in the last few years. Um, I think about it daily, um, and and I think you you would really get a lot of a lot out of it. Um, speaking of books, if are there one or two books about just Native American culture, basic basic stuff that for somebody who does not have any real understanding of it, um, the best the best one, two, three books that you would recommend that they would that they should read. Sure, there's a couple that always come to mind for me. Um, you know, if somebody doesn't really know a whole lot about the about the history, uh, you can't go wrong with uh, reading. Um, bury my heart at wounded knee mm-hmm. and um, uh, my own personal favorites uh, come from one of the mentors that I got to spend a little time with uh, that was by Deloria Jr. and uh, he wrote uh, a couple couple of seminal pieces of work um, one was uh, Custer died for your sins which was really an homage um, well, at least at the, at the time when I first read it, um, it seemed to be an homage to uh, the Red Power Movement of the late 1960s, and it wasn't uh, 
until my 30s and 40s that I was able to see beyond that, that it really was uh, an homage to those people that were protectors of sacred geography, whether it be uh, dams that are all over the place, whether that's North Dakota, the Pacific Northwest, or down in the old Cherokee country in the South Southeast mm-hmm. um, to the, to the modern day um, extensions of that would be the, the water protectors at the Dakota access pipeline or the Keystone pipeline, which I've been a part of both. Um, it took me a long time to understand what Vine was talking about. Um, he went on even further in his next work or subsequent to Custer died for your, Custer died for your sins was God is red. And that's one where he really explained that at the core of all of our of our religion is sacred geography and earth and our relationship with Mother Earth and ultimately how our jobs as human beings are to be stewards of that. And that's really um, changed a lot of my life and my perspective that those are the things that are important. Making a pile of money is not important. Yep. Um, protecting water and our resources so that the uh, you know, the next seven generations can enjoy them. Uh, that's important. So one more question about your, your personal background. Sure. When you, um, if knowing everything you know now and having been on this journey that you've been on, if you could go back and talk to your 18 year old self, let's say just before you're getting in the, getting in the car, on the airplane to, to head to boarding school, what advice would you give that guy? Um, I think your grandfather's advice was, uh, was pretty spot on. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty hard to, to, to top that. Um, I don't know that I would change a whole lot. I, I was so curious and hungry for knowledge. Um, you know, study what you're passionate in. Uh, I wouldn't change that at all. I love studying history and English when I was at, at Dartmouth and uh, it's, you know, it's come full circle, um, combining all the different aspects of my past into, you know, to, be, to becoming a, a writer and a speaker and a, and a thinker. Um, hopefully it's an honorable path. Seems like it to me. Um, so I've got a few questions that I've been asking everybody I've interviewed and we've gotten some really diverse and, and interesting answers and they're pretty quick questions and you can, you don't have to give a quick answer, but, um, you mentioned those three books about native American culture. Are there any, any other books that have been very important to you that you would say you're just your favorite book of all time? Books that I've read that I love, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, I really enjoyed uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, which I mentioned before. Yes. Um, I'm sitting here in my home office and library looking at others that have had a pro- pronounced influence. Um, one that really influenced me a lot was uh, a work by the Lakota scholar, uh, Dr. A.C. Ross. And it's uh, entitled uh, The Talk We All See, which is really hard to spell. Mm-hmm. But you can also find it under its translation into English, which is We Are All Related. And okay. uh, his story was similar to mine. He had finished his uh, PhD in uh, psychology with an emphasis on Jungian psychology and had gone home and been chastised the same way I was. And so he, he combined his world there. Uh, and began to ask a lot of questions, um, hopefully in uh, the work that I'm attempting to do right now with my writing project is to continue some of his work, if not some of the work of Vine Deloria. That's and, great. Uh, just understand how, how we're all related. Sure. And uh, you know, how, uh, you know, in his case, was Eastern mysticism uh, meets with the Plains. And in mine, I'm trying to garnish all of these ancient stories and teachings um, and translate them in a way that everybody can understand and hopefully appreciate the, the beauty in them. And so for people... So with all, go ahead. No, I was just going to... You know, this is... Uh, most of the things that we say are things we've heard from elders. Mm-hmm. I had a 
uh, an uncle at a certain point in my life. He said, you don't need to tell who told you, just say it. You're old enough now, he said. <laughs> That's great. So your book is going to be, be out, you say, in the next year, do you think, year or so? I, I hope so. Okay. I hope so. The scope keeps getting bigger. Uh, I might need to define that a little bit tighter, but uh, right now it's titled uh, Rediscovering America. Uh, sacred geography, the ancient earthen works, and the real history of America. Although I might need to split those into two different books, um, things like Standing Rock and the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline have become um, very poignant in a lot of people's minds and hearts. And so my my guess is I'll uh, write more about that stuff. But with all of the work, uh, the, the you know the teaching has always been, and that's what I tell everybody when I give it. Uh, a lecture or a talk to an audience is um, I don't do this work for myself, although I love it. And I don't do it necessarily for you, although I hope all of you enjoy it. We do the work for all those souls yet to come mm-hmm. so they can appreciate uh, all the water that we've carried and the bountiful gifts of Mother Earth. That's great. That's that purpose thing we were talking about. You know, it's, um, I think that's great. Yeah. That's, that's, I hope those, those youngsters in your class understand how lucky they are <laughs> to have a teacher like you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I certainly use my, uh, my time there to, um, tell them who I really am. Um, I'll often sneak it in there at the last of the semester after we would talk about corporate strategy and then I'll sneak it in there and be like, Hey, uh, this is really what I'm all about. Uh, don't discount my interest in corporate strategy, but, um, and I give them pre- presentation on the book work and experiences and, you know, with all these pictures of the sacred seeds and, um, it's also the journey to places for sacred geography and rediscovering all these, all the stuff that's all around us everywhere um, in this country, everywhere on this continent is uh, a litany of stories of uh, many people who have lived here for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I've only begun to scratch the surface, but uh, the more I learn about the ancient cosmologies and these old stories and the, and the mounds and the earthen works of uh, how complex and beautiful the society was one, that was once on this continent, and hopefully it can be enjoyed again. I I think that's that's very 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 noble and important. Um, we're coming up on an hour here, so there's there's one question that I've been asking um, everybody, and if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and the the common denominators they have a love for the American West, whether they express that through athletics or through uh, you know careers related to conservation or ranching or architecture, artists, um, the, the whole spectrum, but the, the common denominators that they have a deep love for the American West. If you can make one request of these people, what would that be? Well, that's pretty simple. Cause I usually, uh, whatever performance or talk or whatever I give, uh, I always encourage the people, um, you know, the, this land is, uh, amazing and it's beautiful and, most of us love it for that reason. Uh, there are other reasons that you can love it as well. Um, but to really understand it truly, whether you're in Colorado or Nebraska or Montana, you name it, um, the best way to truly understand this land really has to come from uh, something rooted in indigenous peoples. So I always end my talks with telling them, all you good citizens of whatever state that you come from, um, if you really want to see the beauty of this land, you have to see it through indigenous indigenous eyes. So whatever tribe is where you're from, invite them back with open arms because this land will never, ever be whole again until we do that. There is a relationship between the tribes and this land. And I've only begun to scratch the surface personally of understanding what that is. But there is a relationship between uh, our bloodlines and the earth and our blood and our bones that's in the earth. And uh, we often call these things uh, such um, 
like blood DNA. That's what I've discovered when I said that, you know, planting the sacred seeds in the corn has changed me. Something in my DNA has been reawakened and hopefully it's produced uh, something beautiful for others to see. I, I, I can see it. And um, when people, wherever their, their homeland is, is, you know, if you're from um, Colorado there, then you know, bring those Cheyennes and those Arapahoes back. Mm-hmm. Welcome them with open arms and let let the beauty happen. I've witnessed it up over here in Nebraska when, uh, you know, there was a formal invitation and those uh, Pawnees and those Otos and those Iowas and the second boxes. And they came back up here for the first time. And there was tears of joy and a reconnection that I think uh, astounded everyone. And that can happen anywhere in America. And we, and, and we need to do it as, as good citizens of America. We need to do that. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on. How can people learn more about you and your projects? Um, I know you've got some websites and you're active on some social media. Sure. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, our project is uh, sacredseed.org. And uh, you, know, you just uh, Google uh, Taylor Keene and uh, you can usually find me. I mean, I'm all over Facebook and Instagram and all a bunch of other things. I love meeting new friends. So. Great. Well, I'll put links to all that. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was very interesting. Well, we might need to do a part two and three because I, I only got to about a third of my questions, <laughs> but I, I really appreciate I, I, it. I, I would look forward to that and hopefully we'll get a, a positive reaction from, uh, from your audience. I'd, I'd love to continue the conversations that I appreciate you reaching out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.